Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Shibuya Station in downtown Tokyo is one of the busiest rail stations in the world, serving about 2.18 million commuters per day, and it is amazing, I can tell you from experience, that being in or around Shibuya during peak commuting times is an experience like no other. It's basically extreme mass transit. And that makes sense. Shibuya itself is in the heart of Tokyo. Think of Tokyo. Envision it. You're probably thinking about tall buildings, neon, crosswalks with thousands of people using them every minute or so. That is Shibuya, and Shibuya has basically everything. It has all-night rock shows, it has clubs with pulsating EDM, it has basement bars, it has fine dining, it has karaoke, a lot of karaoke. And if you are a 20-something foreigner living in the Tokyo area, then chances are a lot of your nights out are going to begin in Shibuya. Every single evening, it could be Wednesday, it could be Saturday, there are people in Shibuya doing a night out in town, going on dates, partying all of it. The district doesn't really sleep. But you have to meet people there. I mean, if you're going to have a night of fun, debauchery, whatever, it's got to start somewhere. And just saying that you're going to meet somebody at the station isn't precise enough. The station is huge. And saying that you're going to meet somebody in front of the station also isn't really precise enough. That's kind of like saying, I'm going to meet you in front of the airport. You need a landmark. You need something that everybody is familiar with. Something like a statue. And there is a statue outside of Shibuya, one that's been there since 1965, one that is used as a meeting place, so very often people will say, meet me at Hachiko, or meet me at the dog, or meet me in Shibuya by the statue. If you say that, people will know exactly where to find you at one of the biggest rail stations in one of the biggest cities in the world. And when I lived in the Tokyo metro area, plenty of my evenings began next to Hachiko, next to a statue of a dog who lived in Tokyo during the 1920s and 1930s. Hachiko was Nikita, and he belonged to a professor at Tokyo Imperial University, a professor named Hidesaburo Ueno. Back then, Tokyo was still big. It was still bustling. But there was no towering neon. There were no karaoke bars. There were no all-night rock shows or anything like that. It was still a large city, but you could walk with the dog among the streets. And Professor Ueno did precisely that. Every single day, Professor Ueno would get ready for work, he'd eat breakfast, he'd put on his hat and his glasses, and he would walk with his dog to the train station. He would then put in a day of work at the university, studying and lecturing about agricultural science, and then he would come right back to Shibuya Station. Hachiko, his dog, would meet him there. Every single day, the dog would trot back to the station, sit in front of the turnstiles and the commuters, wait for the professor to emerge from the crowds, and I imagine the professor bending down, scritching the little doggo on the back of his neck, and the two of them walking home together. And this routine continued every single day. Every single day, they'd walk, they'd wait, they'd walk again, until May 21st, 1925. Uh, on that day, during a lecture, Professor Ueno suffered a cerebral hemorrhage 
and died at the university, and he was young, he was only 53. But that Monday evening, he did not return from work. Hachiko, though, did not know this. Just like always, the Akita, when evening rolled around, scampered to the train station to meet the professor. He sat down, where he always sat down, and he waited for his professor to emerge from the crowd of commuters. But he never did. Hachiko, I imagine him, looking at the crowd, listening to the crowd, smelling the crowd, waiting for that right combination of look and voice and smell that are all the markers that say, this is my human, but none of those sights or sounds or smells ever came to the Akita. The evening faded into night, and Hachiko went home. The next morning, the professor was not there to walk to the station with Hachiko. Who knows what the dog thought or felt? And evening rolled around. In the evening, the dog knew what to do. He went to Shibuya Station, sat down, looked and listened to and smelled the crowd, and waited for the professor. Maybe today would be different. But there was still nothing. No member of the crowd was his. None of them smelled right. None of them had the right voice or look. After hours, Hachiko went home. But maybe the next day would be different. He returned to the station and waited, but still nothing. And Hachiko did the same the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, and so on for ten years, from 1925 until 1935, the Akita waited outside the train station for Professor Ueno, but the professor never came. Hachiko returned anyway. He became a fixture of Shibuya Station. Commuters and the station staff began to recognize him. They pet him. They fed him. And they all knew why he was there. People remembered the professor and his dog. They remembered the guy who had walked to the train station with the Akita every single day. They knew who the dog waited for, but you can't really explain mortality to a dog. The Akita became as much of a feature of that train station and that part of downtown Tokyo as any storefront or landmark. In some ways, he was a landmark. He was always there at the same time every single day, waiting patiently. And Hachiko waited there until March 8th, 1935, when he died on the streets of Shibuya. He was, after that, finally reunited with Professor Ueno. He is now buried next to the man he waited for. And the streets of Shibuya were a little emptier. The statue memorializing Hachiko has been outside Shibuya Station since 1965, though it is not the first one. The first statue actually went up while Hachiko was still alive in 1934, and apparently the dog was present at the unveiling of his own statue. Who knows what Hachiko felt about that. But the original statue was melted down for scrap during World War II, which is not the biggest tragedy of World War II, but it is a tiny tragedy of World War II. But fortunately, in 1965, the original artist replaced the statue with one that looked just like it. The particular exit that the statue sits next to in Shibuya Station is now known as the Hachiko exit, which is kind of cute because if you're in a lot of Japanese train stations, a lot of them will have names like North Exit, South Exit, or exits to particular districts or areas. They're very functional, but this one is named for the dog. One little detail also is that in 2007, uh, there was an April Fool's joke where the Japan Times claimed that the statue had been stolen. Uh, not cool, Japan Times. Why would you do that? But don't worry, 
it's there. But every single evening, people meet up at Hachiko, and the dog who waited patiently for his professor, who became a familiar sight at the train station, is a familiar sight still. And before going out for all-night dancing, for shows in underground clubs, for karaoke, for any of that, every night, thousands of partiers are reminded of the dog who waited. But here's the thing. Hachiko is not an isolated incident. Now, Hachiko is amazing. I love Hachiko. Hachiko is great, and I don't want to take anything away from him, but there are other dogs who have done this too. Other dogs have waited a very long time for people who have died. For example, there was a dog in Scotland named Greyfriars Bobby who slept on his owner's grave for years. Uh, there was a similar case to Hachiko in 1930s Montana. This border collie named Old Shep, he saw his master's coffin getting loaded onto a train. So what did Old Shep do? He waited by the train station for his human to return. Uh, in the 1940s, in Italy, there was a dog named Fido whose owner went off to World War II and who died. Fido waited for his owner to return for 14 years, and that is fitting because, after all, Fido comes from the Latin term fide, or loyalty. And this goes back even further in fiction. In the Odyssey, Odysseus's dog Argos waits for the hero of that epic to come back for almost two decades. When Odysseus finally comes home, Argos, he gets up, he takes one look at his master, he realizes that he has kept his vigil, and then he finally allows himself to die. And in terms of extreme dog loyalty, dogs don't just sit in the same place and wait, they can also come back. Probably the most extreme example of extreme dog coming back is from the 1920s with a dog called Bobby. Bobby was from my state. He was from Oregon. And his family took him on a road trip to Indiana. They accidentally left him there. So what did Bobby do? He walked the 2,251 miles from Indiana back to Oregon to meet his family again. Apparently, he was in terrible shape when he came home. He was skinny and dirty and mangy, but he did it. Um, our friends over at Kick-Ass Oregon History did a whole episode on Bobby that you should definitely check out. But after doing this, he wasn't just Bobby anymore. He was Bobby the Wonder Dog, and rightly so. He earned that title. We don't know how long ago dogs were domesticated. Maybe 10,000 years ago. Maybe 30,000 years ago. We don't know where they were domesticated. Europe, China, we're not sure. And it might not have been one domestication. There could have been groups of dogs that were domesticated in different areas and at different times independently of each other. We're not sure. And we're don't, we don't even know how it kind of worked. One theory is that dogs could have kind of domesticated themselves. It's entirely possible that eons ago, some of the more eccentric wolves decided to go check out these weird hairless apes that were grilling meat around a fire. And they found out that Hanging out with the weird hairless apes was kind of a good deal. After all, we had snacks. And from there we go from wild prehistoric wolves to, you know, pugs and labradoodles and schnauzers and all that. And you're probably wondering why I'm doing another episode about dogs right now. After all, 
I just recently did one about Bummer and Lazarus of San Francisco. You might also be wondering why this episode is a little late. Earlier this year, my fiancé and I started caring for a Jack Russell Terrier named Rufus. Now, we didn't adopt him. This was like a long-term dog-sitting situation. But he lived with us for several months and very much became part of our family. He was an old dog. He was 17 years old. He was deaf, he was going blind, and one of his back legs didn't work all that well. But Jack Russell Terriers are high-energy dogs, and this old guy still had some scamper in his step. I would take him running, and he would sprint faster than me. Even as a geriatric dog with a wobbly back leg, he could outrun me. And we'd go to our local parks, and I'd let him off the leash. He would tear around, he would smell things, he would do dog stuff, and I always loved it, when after I left him off the leash, he'd come back to me. That little dog, he had the wiry hair and the milky eyes that old dogs get, but he still had most of his puppy-like energy, and he bounded back to me, the weird hairless ape he decided was a member of his pack. And when I was hanging out with this old dog, I thought, I want to be like Rufus when I'm old. I want to be an 80, 90, 100-year-old man, and I still want to go running. I still want to have energy. I still want to be childlike or puppy-like. I want that enthusiasm in my later days. A little over a week ago, on Sunday, the day when I normally finish the podcast, my fiancé and I came home to find Rufus collapsed in our backyard. It was a hot day, and he was lying in the sun, panting and breathing heavily. We wondered what had happened. He had a dog door. He could have gotten back into our house, but he was just there, immobilized in the hot sun. Sarah, my fiancé, picked him up, brought him back in, and we thought he had heat stroke, so we tried to cool him down. And it worked a little. He gained a little bit more alertness, he drank a bunch of water, but it appeared he'd lost mobility in his back legs. He couldn't stand up. Later on, the vet explained that he'd had a stroke, and that accounted for why he had lost mobility back there, why he'd collapsed in the backyard, why he had not gone back in on a hot day using his dog door. He'd had a stroke, he'd lost mobility, he probably had lost a lot of cognitive function. He was 17 years old and there was no coming back from it. Sarah and I hardly slept that night. The next day, I was very happy that my company lets me work from home. And dogs are often described as loyal, and they are, but I don't know if that's the best word for it. They're more than loyal, they recognize us as their own. They see us as legitimate targets for their affections. And it's strange and wonderful to be on the receiving end of that. It's also sometimes perplexing to think, what did I do to earn this primal and pure affection? How do I deserve this recognition, this enthusiasm, this doggy excitement? It's a wonderful feeling. And I thought of that every time Rufus ran back to me with all of his Jack Russell speed. And also, I want to add, I still want to be like Rufus when I'm old. I took him out for his very last walk the day he died. Earlier that day, he had been bounding and sprinting and loving every minute of it. And I realized that's what I want. I think that's the best any of us can do. And when he would run and sprint and tear around, he again would always come back to me with a look on his face that said, I am with you. You are with me. We are a pack. He didn't wait for me at the train station after my death. 
but that was enough for me. As always, this is an independent podcast. It exists because you support it. So go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a supporter. Thank you, all of you who do that every single month. You are rock stars. Go on iTunes, give us ratings, reviews, the rest of it. That helps other people discover the show. I am on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. I am at Joe Streckert on Twitter. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Mm-hmm.